Hi, Mark Middleton with Bill Schaefer, and we've got a question for you right now. How do you react to challenges if you look them right in the eye, face them head on, and are willing to fight to make the best of any situation? Then congratulations, you are now officially a member of Team GB. And you're about to hear from some pretty impressive people who are also on the team right along there with you. You're going to meet someone who took up a very unusual sport for a woman. She's become a champion weightlifter in her 60s. You'll also meet a stand-up comic who's been on Seinfeld but found his passion in an unusual place. And meet one of the greatest rock stars ever. We'll talk with BTO's Randy Bachman. And that's what we mean when we say this is Growing Boulder. The following interview was recorded before the passing of our guest. Hurry, Bullwinkle! The show's about to start! I'm coming as fast as I can! Wait to the people! Yay! Oh, Man, do I miss that. Thank you very much, Rocket J. Squirrel. That, of course, from one of the most fondly remembered cartoon shows ever, Rocky and Bullwinker. And even though the animation was really not the greatest, the scripts were. They were aimed at adults even more than they were kids. And the characters, well, the voice acting was nothing short of spectacular. And our next guest was actually the voice of Rocky and nearly every female character on that show. Isn't that something? And that's not it. She was also the voice of Cindy Lou Who, of Witch Hazel, Nell Fenwick, and Granny from the Tweety and Sylvester cartoons. And some call her the female Mel Blanc. But Chuck Jones, Mark, he's the man that was behind countless Warner Brothers cartoons. He says, no, Mel is the male June. Well, at long last, she's written a fascinating autobiography called Did You Grow Up With Me Too? Well, let's hear the warm, familiar voice of June Foray. Hey, June, how are you? Well, good morning. Oh, it isn't morning where you are. You know, it's it, the sun is shining anytime we hear your voice, girl, and we want to congratulate you on your recent Daytime Emmy Award for Outstanding Performer in an Animated Program for your work on The Garfield Show. Yes, I, I'm a witch. Why am I always playing witches? I guess I am one, basically. <laughs> uh, tell us a little bit about the book, June. Uh, did you grow up with me too? What led you to write the book, and, and what do we? Sh- what's the takeaway there? Well, you know, every time I make a lot of public appearances, and I also um, I help kids in college who uh, at Cal Arts who are studying animation, and every time I see them as if they communicated with each other, they all say, I grew up with you. And so I thought, well, people would be interested in my autobiography. So it came to mind immediately that, did you grow up with me too, if you read it? You know, it's a great title, June. And before we ask you some of the things from your past, let's talk about your present. Is it true that you're 95 years old? Yes, I, you know, I used to lie about my age because I still don't look it, and I don't sound it. And um, I can still do Rocky and all the characters I did, but um, they put some jerk put it on a computer, and so everybody knows now. I guess I should be proud that I'm, I'm 95 and still working. Yeah, that's the whole point of this program, June. It's not just what you did before, but the fact that you could have taken your earnings and gone away, but you love what you do. And even at 95, you're looking forward to each new day and each new challenge. Yes, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm keeping very busy. And I was on the board of the Motion Picture Academy for 26 years. Hmm. I'm not on the board anymore, but uh, I'm still on committees. So every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday nights and Sunday nights, I'm judging films for the Oscars, the animated films, and the animated features. And we've had more this year than we've ever had. 
You know, June, before we leave the point about your age, uh, you know, I want to make a point that, that when you were growing up, you didn't probably know anybody that was 95 that was doing what you're doing. Uh, and, and you are such a tremendous role model. What a great, valuable asset you are to all of the people out there in their 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s who hear you at 95 and are inspired to know that life really can continue to be productive and fulfilling. So thank you for, for admitting your age and telling us all about you. Well, thank you, Bill. I appreciate that. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, all of these characters. Do you have a favorite that you did? And, and I don't know, this may not be a good question to ask, but could you do a little bit of one of your favorite characters for us? Did what? Do you have a favorite voice a character that you have performed yeah. over the years, and could you do just a little bit of it for us? Well, of course I do, Natasha, darling, and <laughs> and Cindy Lou, who she only had one line, but she said, Why, Santa, why did you steal our Christmas tree? <laughs> and then, do you remember Talking Tina in the Twilight Zone? Oh, yeah. The doll who killed Telly Savalas, the mean husband. That was the meanest character ever, June. Yeah, everybody. I know I went to an autograph show last week, and the most pictures I sold were Talking Tina. You didn't do her voice, did you? Yes, I did. Really? Yes. She's the one who said, My name is Taki Tina, and I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and and do you still do Rocky? Hokey smoke, I sure can. <laughs> you know, and of course I do Natasha. And I'm still doing Granny, you know, and Looney Tunes. June, that's that's what we love about you. Now, a lot of us don't really know how voice acting works. Did you did you all you didn't stand around in front of one mic like an old radio show? I mean, you all did your parts separately, right? How difficult or exciting was it to be a voice actor? You know, I turned down a lot of on camera things because I love voice acting, and I can change my voice. You know, in in one breath, Rocky would say. Hokey Smoke, haven't I seen you somewhere before? No, darling, that was Boris. <laughs> but it's fun, and I love doing it. Wow. What's the secret, uh, June, if you will, the, the, to, to staying excited about life and involved in life at, 80, at, 80, or at 95? What can we learn from you? You know what? I still think young. I Maybe I have a 95-year-old body, which doesn't look it really, but I have a mind of my 20-year-old. I'm still a fighter. I'm still anxious to get things right. I want peace on the earth, and um, I'm, I, I think that way. And, June, you still spend a lot of time hanging out with some of the, the new talent coming up. I, I heard you recently on Rob Pearson's uh, podcast. He does Pinky, a Pinky and the Brain. And, and you're right there with these 20-something, 30-something-year-old guys, and, and you fit right in. It's like age doesn't even matter. <laughs> well, I still look young, and I was beautiful when I was young. But um, I've just gotten a little bit older, but I still look pretty good. You know, I'm looking at some pictures of you online right now, June, because I just wanted to see what you look like today. And you're right. You do look great. And you're also right. You were an unbelievably beautiful woman. Well, aren't you nice? Thank you. Well, thank you for all that you do. Uh, Bill mentioned that you worked with Mel Blanc uh, for a while. Uh, what was that like, and how did you guys get along? Well, Mel was a terrific man and, of course, talented. The first time I worked with Mel... I did Witch Hazel on Broomstick Bunny for um, for Chuck Jones. I had done Witch Hazel at Disney on Trick or Treat, and uh, and I was amazed that I had never worked at Warner Brothers before. <laughs> and my agent called and said, um, how would you like to work for Warner's? And I said, I love it. Why? He said, well, you're going to meet Chuck Jones. And I said, Chuck, who? I did, you know, I was just starting in the business. I didn't know who Chuck Jones was. And I met Mel Blanc. I, I had seen him at NBC and CBS uh, on, when he did radio, but I never met him. And uh, 
when we did Broomstick Bunny together, I did Witch Hazel, and of course he did uh, he did Bugs Bunny, and um, but sometimes they would speed up Mel's voice. So Mel was always in the studio when I worked with him, but I always recorded first because uh, if he did Tweety, they speeded up the to make his voice a little higher, you know. But he was a charming man, and uh, once when I was recording uh, at uh, I was recording Rocket Bullwinkle. I was at the studio. I drove my car in. And his agent was outside of the studio. And I said, um, what are you doing waiting outside? He said, we're waiting for Mel Blanc. Well, I recorded Rockin' Bullwinkle, and I got in my car, turned on the radio, and Mel had that horrible accident. He practically broke every bone in his body. But he survived it. He was a, he was a terrific fighting man. He loved life, and he loved working. And so I would work with him at his home. They, Warner Brothers would record him at his home while he was still in bed recovering. And you know who else was a survivor also is June Foray. Folks, don't forget, she broke into voice acting when it was like maybe Dawes Butler, Stan Freeberg, Mel Blanc, no women at all. And June not only forged a great career... She's 95 and still going and really became an icon and a legend in the voice acting category. The book is called Did You Grow Up With Me Too? And that voice, that wonderful voice, belonging to the one and only June Foray. Up next, he was a guest on an episode of Seinfeld before realizing the best laugh is the last laugh. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Located in West Orange County, Orlando Health's Health Central Hospital is a full-service hospital with a newly expanded ER as well as top-rated neurospine and orthopedic programs. Learn more at orlandohealth.com. And by... The Legacy Life Project from Macbeth Studio, preserving family history, stories, and memories for generations to come by creating personal video biographies of your loved ones. Everyone has a story worth preserving. LegacyLifeProject.com Welcome back, everybody. I'm Mark Middleton. And, of course, that guy over there in the purple shirt, well, that's Bill Schaefer. And this is Growing Boulder. Did you ever have a dream in life uh, and then actually get a chance to make it come true, only to realize that's not really quite what you thought it would be? Well, that's exactly what happened to stand-up comedian Brian Bradley. Yeah, do you know that name? I mean, you've seen him on more than 20 different sitcoms. He's even been on the Seinfeld Show. How about six feature films and a full-year run on Broadway? This guy thought all of that was going to make him happy, but it wasn't quite what he expected, even though it was something he'd wanted as far back as he can remember. Some people struggle to find their calling. Brian Bradley knew right from the start. I always wanted to be a, a comic since I was four years old. It's my, first, my very first memory, uh, watching I Love Lucy and Dick Van Dyke, and I wanted, I wanted to be that. And that is exactly what he became. First of all, you just step over the border... What the hell are you saying? Well, I started at the Comedy Store in Los Angeles doing open mic and improv and uh, just started emceeing and then started getting gigs. I was the king of the callbacks in, in my career. I'd get that close. I'd get, you know, it's between you and the other guy. And the other guy got it. I... You, Numerous series I was up for, and uh, Bruce Willis and I were up for Moonlighting. <laughs> You're laughing about that. Uh-huh. I think it's funny, you know. I went to the gym, I started lifting weights, and nothing's happening. <laughs> That's not the laughy part of the joke, all right? Just... It was too weird. It was just, you know, like, you get so close, and your agent's uh, talking about money and, and he's throwing out these figures and you're thinking by Thursday my life could take a quantum leap and then it doesn't and you're performing at the Red Onion in Rancho Cucamonga and uh, I finally just said I, 
why am I putting myself through this? It's not that gratifying. It's, and that's not sour grapes. You know, working in sitcoms is kind of boring and, and it's bad material. It's embarrassing. There really aren't that many. I was on a Seinfeld. That's the only quality show. These others were just drivel. I need more pledge. More pledge? I just bought two cans last week and I don't have any wood in the house. Well, it goes fast. I knew uh, Jerry from the comedy store and uh, he's just a, he is who he is on TV. He's just a nice guy, uh, no pretense. And uh, he once said to me what I've often said. He goes, I just want to make a living doing what I love. Hey, hey, it's Vince Fontaine here with Fox 5 and the cast of Grease. And it was that desire that convinced him to take another chance, this time on Broadway in the revival of Grease. Grease was a big left turn for me, yes. And uh, I never, I can't sing and I can't dance. And I wound up in a Broadway, in a Broadway show. <laughs> Where you got rave reviews. That was met with an icy reception with the cast because... Uh, it, the review started off just touting me because I did this audience warm-up as Vince Fontaine and then he goes, Mr. Bradley leaves the stage and that's when you hear the thud and the rest of it was a terrible review. So I felt bad for them because they're tremendously talented singers. Brian's star was on the rise, but he wasn't quite in Broadway's inner circle, especially after unknowingly humiliating himself in the presence of a superstar. And uh, I made the uh, big faux pas of extending my hand to Barbara Streisand. You know, this sounds so show busy. Brooke Shields invites me up to her dressing room when Streisand came to see Grease. And uh, she's standing there in this little semicircle. And, and Brooke goes, Brian, this is Barbara Streisand. And I reached my hand out. And all the other people went, <gasps> like, oh, no, you don't do that. And what's she going to do? She hates touching other people. And uh, <laughs> she reluctantly went, you know, touched the, uh, the groundling. When the show finally closed, Brian wasn't sure what to do. After 20 sitcoms and six feature film appearances, he wasn't anxious to go back to L.A. Oh, so like he one. moved back this home to Florida, home. hearing the voices uh, of his parents echoing in his mind. You get the snappy comics. I do. They once said to me, when I told them I wanted to be a stand-up comic, they said, well, what are you going to do when you're 55? And I said, I'll tell you when I'm 55. <laughs> and now I'm 55. <laughs> what, what would you tell them if they asked I'm you? I'm still a comic, you know, still doing it. And if one day I wind up bagging groceries at Publix, so what? But is there enough work out there for middle-aged comics? Most of the comedians these days are like 20-something True, but I also have found that funny's funny, you know. And uh, there's a woman, uh, she recently uh, was on uh, America Has Talent, Grandma Lee. I got divorced because of religion. He thought he was God. I did not. And I worked with her in uh, a weekend room in Fort Myers, and she's in her little Toyota put puttering around the country, going from gig to gig, and suddenly, boom, she's kind of hit it at... 75, 80 years old? You don't find her interesting because that's going to be you one day. Did you? <laughs> it, you know what? It may be. And that's fine. If I can still find something to be funny about and be working, that bring it on. Uh, I'm very interested in uh, the retirement community circuit. Uh, I've done a number of them. Like, that, you know, the boomers are creating these beautiful communities and they're really active and they have these old carts with, you know, 57 Chevy Finns. And uh, they have beautiful theaters and nice budgets, and they're a great audience. So, I love it. You're scaring the body back to life. In fact, Brian may have stumbled upon something that can keep his career going strong for years. Senior communities are hungry for real talent, and many entertainers still believe working there is beneath them. Red Buttons was doing the retirement community circuit. This is an Oscar-winning actor, you know. You just find a niche. You find, you know, the retirement community, they're very vital people. And I don't talk down to them. I address them as vital sexual beings, which they are. They still feel like they're 40 until they look in the mirror and try to stand up. 
but you know they've got brains and and libidos and they're you know they're uh, very interesting people when you engage them you don't have to treat them like little grandmas and grandpas and that's helped him appreciate the little things along the way i've learned stop complaining about your situation about your money about the room about other comedians it just doesn't serve any purpose other than to feed your little ego oh oh i'm so sorry <laughs> so if i can if i can just focus on acceptance of this is what's happening and uh and roll with it i i have over the course of time learned that <laughs> if i could name him his name would be Maestro. Maestro. <laughs> he never quite found fame, and he certainly hasn't found fortune, but Brian Bradley has carved out a fascinating career and learned to enjoy its true rewards. The nice part about stand-up comedy and, and are the surprises you get when people come up to you and say, I haven't laughed in six months. My wife died of cancer all these terrible things. I've been holed up in my house. My friend dragged me out. And tonight, my stomach hurts from laughing. I want to thank you. You know? And it, that was surprisingly gratifying. Stand up for God, everybody! And that is Brian Bradley. You know why he gets that kind of reaction? You don't even realize you're watching a prepared routine. He's so off the cuff and spontaneous, and he's always pulling people out of the audience and up on the stage that a lot of the show really is improvisation, and that's what he's the best at. You see Brian once with no idea what to expect, and not only do you come away happy, but you're also a fan of his forever. Yeah, that was a great profile, Bill. Interesting, too, that maybe what was missing most of all from doing sitcoms and movies was the excitement of actually interacting with real people in a live audience. And, man, as you say, he is great at it. I can only imagine that standing on a stage, seeing everybody laugh, would be one of the most powerful and satisfying feelings out there. Hi, I'm Dr. Dot Richardson, two-time Olympic gold medalist. After winning the first Olympics in our sport in 1996 in Atlanta, I wanted to make sure that that gold medal was around every child in the children's hospital. Well, I'll never forget the last patient that I saw that morning. When I went into the intensive care room, I looked at her and half of her head was shaven bald and the other half was this thick black curly hair. She had just had brain surgery four days earlier. When I walked into the room, I noticed her mom was standing to the right and her sister was seated to the left. And as I put the Olympic gold medal around her neck and we got cheek to cheek as we looked up and the cameraman took that little Polaroid, I walked away from her, I said, you look good in gold. And she gave this huge smile I will never forget. And she said, is it real gold? How many times have I heard that? But I'll never forget this answer. When I told her, I said, well, it's really 90% silver, 10% gold, but it's pure gold to me. As I said goodbye and I was leaving her room, I noticed her mother and sister were both crying. And when I left the room, the four nurses who had gathered all had tears in their eyes. As I passed the last nurse, I said, is everything okay? Did I do something wrong? And she said, no, Dot, you don't understand. This child has not spoken a single word since her surgery until now. You know, as we continue to grow bolder in our lives, I believe the most important thing is for us to use ourselves to make a difference in the lives of other people, to take the time for others, to make them feel as special as they are. Each of you are so special, and each of you have an opportunity every day of your life to impact others in positive ways. I pray you do it, and know that when you do, it's amazing how you're gonna feel. In a moment, a powerful and personal story of standing up to cancer from dietitian and nutritionist Susan Mitchell. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by the Center for Health and Well-Being, coming soon in Winter Park. Wellness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. 
Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. This is Growing Boulder. I'm Bill Schaefer here with someone you hear quite often on this program, but what you may not know is why she does what she does in the first place. And in this case, the why is a big differentiator between her and the many, many others in the field. She is registered dietitian and nutritionist. Boy, it's nice to have a few moments to visit with Dr. Susan Mitchell. How you doing? I'm great. I'm glad to be with you today face-to-face. Well, you know what we love about you is you come on this program week after week, and you bring with you all kinds of useful information that either we didn't know or that we were surprised to find out. Things about how what we eat affects our health and it affects our lives. But can we over-exaggerate how important our diets are? Oh, sure. But, you know, that's what the media does. So one of the things, and it's a balance that I always have to find because, you know, the media wants to sell, 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 sell hype. And sometimes it's not accurate science. And so as a registered dietitian with my doctorate in nutrition, one of the things that I need to do is always say, okay, make sure this is truth. Make sure it's accurate. Make sure it's what the evidence-based sound science says. Because if I'm going to give you information that will hopefully make a difference in your life, I want want it to be backed by sound science. So you're saying that sometimes we'll hear things on the news, but it's important to use the tools we have to find the whole story. Absolutely, because you can go searching something on the internet and there's probably a better chance that it will be hype or hearsay than it will be based by accurate facts or based on accurate facts. It's a great topic and it seems like it's really exploded lately because oh. you know we all need to think about what we eat. But that isn't necessarily what drew you to your career in diet and nutrition. Tell us about what really led you here. Really more emotion. I think that the way I actually got started is at, in college, I was looking for that right you know, major, as everyone else is. And my dad had actually been to the doctor and came home and had high cholesterol and had seen a registered dietitian at the hospital who put him on a low cholesterol diet. And so he's telling me all about it. And he said, it was really fascinating what I learned. And he starts telling me all these different things that the dietitian had told him. And then he goes, did you know that the University of Tennessee, that's where I was going to school, has one of the top three dietetics programs in the country? I said, no, I didn't, Dad. <laughs> and he goes, you might want to look into it. Well, my interest had always been health and medicine. I just didn't know a direction. I looked into the program. I started taking the courses. And that's what started me into nutrition and health. And I know that the you really sort of had the rug kind of pulled out from under you, and which really catapulted you into the field when, when your, your father and right. some family you know, members. About a, a few years back now, um, I lost my, my mom and my dad and my brother within two and a half years. And two of them died of cancer. Uh, melanoma, my brother, was only 40. My dad, um, lung cancer that had metastasized, spread all through his body. And my mom, lupus, an auto immune disease. And that was a game changer for me. What, why? Because it was, I, I just, no matter what I did, I couldn't make them well. And I kept saying to myself, I, I've gone to school nine years and I can't heal them. And the more research was starting to come out on the power of nutrition and cancer prevention and cancer treatment, the more that was coming out about the immune system and preventing, helping to prevent autoimmune things. You know, I just became more and more passionate about, you know what? There are people out there that I can make a difference. I can share what I've learned. I can share what the science says. I can make it palatable, <laughs> easy to digest. We're so quick to want that pill. And, yeah. and then in your studies, you find out that maybe the food is, is more powerful. You know what's so interesting is that most studies show that supplements are not 
the answer, that it's food first. And the reason for that is what's called um, the synergistic effect. If you think like the players on a basketball team, the way everyone interacts to get that goal. In your body, food does that same thing. It interacts the, the nutrients within a single food as well as multiple foods digesting and working together the way the body was created. It's so miraculous. And what we know now is like in cancer, for example, over a third of cancer deaths in this country could potentially be eliminated by the way you eat, by the power of food. And I think, you know, knowing that and knowing that my family didn't survive, but if your family can survive from tips and information I can give you that's real in your kitchen today, then that makes a big difference to me. With so many things that are that are affecting people today, like uh, diabetes, obesity, and, and not even just to mention the cancers, we always wait till the doctor tells us we have. Then we come running to Dr. Susan Mitchell and say, how do we change our diets? But the time is now, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. You know, I call that the old school way. It's like, okay, wait until I've been given the bad news and then try to do something about it. But hey, by that point, it's almost and many times too late. But today, prevention, wellness, good health, whatever term you want to use. It's all about starting your kids from the time, well, prenatally or in the womb, (laughs) all the way till you're an adult and learning that real food, eating real food, great tasting, prepared, wonderful food also makes a great, healthy, powerful body. So, So what's the takeaway, Susan? What do you hope that we all learn from everything that you contribute? That you don't have to change your entire life and be stressed to the max. That you can take a small and simple step every day to make a change in the way you eat, the way you live, the way you sleep, the way you play, to be healthier and have a better body and better health over time. Yeah, we all kind of went nutty when they put a little ethanol in the gasoline that we put in our cars. I mean, what an outrage. Why would we put that in our gas tanks? But we don't often think enough about what are we fueling our own bodies with. And you've shown us week after week what a difference little changes can make in our lives. She is registered dietitian and nutrition expert, Dr. Susan Mitchell. Coming up, the man who made the Guess Who a classic and made Bachman Turner Overdrive one of the best bands ever, Randy Bachman, joins us right here next. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by the Masson Spine Institute, where world-renowned minimally invasive techniques lead to fast recovery. The Masson Spine Institute, excellence in spinal surgery. More information at MassonSI.com. And by Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. That song is as good today as the day it was written. This is Growing Boulder. Bill and Mark here. And you picked an especially great time to tune in, folks. We're about to meet a true legend of rock, one of the most amazing guitarists ever who's written, produced, and performed many songs that you have known Well, just about forever. His career has spawned 110 gold and platinum records. Are you kidding? 110? No. People that have careers that don't even write that many songs. (laughs) And I know you're thinking, who's Mark talking about? Well, the first clue is guess who? And he was in another group, which brings us to the second clue. And here's that one.
taking care of business. One of the greatest rock songs of all time, Bachman Turner Overdrive. We are over the moon to say hi to the author of the new book, Vinyl Tap Stories, Randy Bachman. Hey, Randy, how you doing? I'm great. Hi, guys. Good to talk to you. Oh, man, it's so cool to get to talk to you because there are so many great stories behind the song, Taking Care of Business, but my favorite is the one you tell about the piano because that piano track is so prominent. Tell us that story, Randy. The song was uh, the first one I was actually singing lead on to give Fred Turner a break, Uh, and so we put it on an album, and we were listening to the playback late at night about 2 in the morning. There was a knock at the studio door, and there was a guy about, I don't know, six and a half feet tall there with a big beard and an army fatigue suit on with some pizzas in his hand. He said, did you guys order pizza? And I said, no, it must have been down the hall. Down the hall at the same studio, Steve Miller was recording his Fly Like an Eagle album, and War was doing their Why Can't We Be Friends album. And I was there doing the second BTO album. And uh, so he went down the hall, delivered the pizza to somebody down the hall, and came back, knocked on the door again. And I said, yes. And he said, well, I got rid of the pizza, but I've been listening to this song through the door, and it sounds like I could really use a piano. And will you give me a shot? I'm a piano player. I'm not really a pizza delivery guy. Just at the end of the month, when I need money, I deliver pizza. And uh, I thought, well, what the heck? Who am I not to give this guy a shot? So I said, look, at, uh, I'll give you a shot. Throw in a mic. We'll just put it down while we're getting on our coats and leaving the studio. So play a little bit of Little Richard, a little bit of Elton John, a little bit of Dr. John. We'll listen to it tomorrow, see how we like it. So we did that. We all went home. We didn't even hear it back. Uh, amazingly enough, the head of our label flew in the next day. So when we were hearing it back, it was the first time we're all hearing the piano. And he jumped out of his seat and he said, wow, that's amazing. BTO at the piano, that'll get you on Top 40 Radio, because that's like Elton John was all over the radio in the early 70s. And then he said, who's playing the piano? And I said, a pizza guy. <laughs> guy delivered the pizza. And he said, no, seriously, all, all, all seriousness, now who deliver, who's playing the piano? And I said, in all seriousness, a pizza guy. I don't know who he was. He knocked on the door, and he, and he said, well, we've got to find this guy. So we went down the hall and asked Steve Miller and War, where'd they order pizza from the night before? Well, they didn't remember that. The studio had cleaned up. There was no menus. So we had to go through the yellow pages and phone every pizza and studio uh, uh, Italian place within like two or three blocks of the studio. We finally did find the guy. His name was Norman Durkee. That's the piano here. It's one take. That's the piano on taking care of business. And he just played in all the holes. So like you said, it's prominent. But he doesn't step on me at all when I'm doing my singing or the guitar. He just he plays on all the little holes, like so it's like a call and response kind of thing. And it made the track a real party track. Cause we didn't know what he was doing. He didn't know what he was doing. And that's what happens at a party. Nobody knows what they're doing except having fun and enjoying the moment. And that's, that's what you hear on TCB to this day. Wow, a great story, and kudos to you because, uh, Randy, that's pretty much musical karma. You know, you're a nice enough guy to give this guy a shot, and it comes back to, to do all of that. Hey, let, let us wish you happy birthday if it's okay because, you know, rock is supposed to be for the young. At least that's what we all thought 40 years ago. But, you know, you're 69, nearing 70, and, and you still tear it up, and it's easy to hear in your voice you still have the passion for it. Has aging changed you musically in any way? Uh, not really, uh, and I'm very grateful for <laughs> Paul McCartney, who's a year older than me, <laughs> and Mick Jagger and those guys. I, I just think you get more appreciation the older you get. For And I'm very grateful to be touring with Fred Turner, as Backman and Turner, and we still go out and play all the BTO hits and a couple of new songs and play American Woman from my Guess Who days, and it, life is still great. I'm still living a teenage dream. And uh, being 68 doesn't matter to me. I, I feel like I'm, you know, 67. <laughs> <laughs> and, Randy, how about this, too? I mean, not only are you doing that, but you're also reinventing yourself. You're the host of a great show on satellite radio called Randy's Vinyl Tap. And now you've got a book out by the same name. Tell us about being an author. Why did you write a book? Well, a friend of mine... Well, uh, I, had, I get millions of you know, emails every week when I do my show. It's a two-hour show on CBC in Canada. It's on satellite uh, in the States uh, saying, can you write these stories down, put them in a book? How can we get them? 
So a friend of mine in Winnipeg, John Anderson, who basically has written the, the BTO book, the Guess Who book, the Neil Young book. He's a musician and a historian and grew up with me and Neil Young and Burton Cummings and, and Fred Turner in the 60s in Winnipeg. He just listened to a bunch of my radio shows, and he took every time I mentioned Brian Wilson or told the Beach Boy story, he made a chapter out of it. And then all my Elvis stories and all my Jimmy Page stories, and he made them into the different chapters of the book. And presented it to Penguin Books in Canada, and they put it out, I don't know, five or six months ago, and it became a bestseller, which was amazing to me. And then now it's released in the States this week, uh, pretty much on the eve of my birthday. My birthday is tomorrow. That's what I'm talking to you guys today. I'm taking tomorrow off. <laughs> and uh, I'm very surprised at the whole thing. Uh, I, I read the book for the first time because... I've spoken these words over a couple of years, but he put them all together. So I find myself reading the book at night going through, and I kind of know it because I spoke it, but there's some real hilarious parts that I find myself really laughing out loud over. It's just really fun. Uh, can't wait to see that. Congratulations on all of that. And before we let you go, let's dip back to 1965, uh, because that's really where it all started for you with a little song that sounds something like this. And one reason Randy Bachman wrote the book is there's so many stories just connected with that song about how the band didn't even have a name. And, of course, when this song hit, Randy, you guys were all independently wealthy afterwards, right? Yeah, it sold about 400,000 copies, and our check was $400. We were in New York City, and I said to Scepter Records, are we, are we ever going to get any royalties on this? And they, So they were, like, put on the hook right then. We're there in their office. And they said, oh, yeah. And so they gave us a check for 400 And I, we cashed it. And that was 100 bucks each in New York in 1965. And it was, we thought, this is it. We've made it. You know, and after that summer tour of 65, which was the Kingsman Louie Louie tour we were on, uh, I got home and my dad said, well, son, what have you got for your summer away from home when you should have had a real job? And I said, they got a new guitar and 40 bucks left. Isn't that great, Dad? And he just... He was stunned. He looked at me, and I said, I'm, I'm in. I'm hooked. I'm doing this. My son will never become anything. And now look at you. You're on Canada's Walk of Fame. You're still touring. You've got songs that there isn't a soul in North America that doesn't know your voice and doesn't know your music and wouldn't want to see you on tour. So make sure, guys, you follow Randy Bachman. Read his book. He, you know, you'll, you'll find stories just like the ones he's told here today that will just amaze you about the really great days of rock. He's one of the best and brightest that music has ever produced and a great example for us all because pushing 70, the guy, still touring, still making music, trying new things, and still growing bolder. The author of Randy Bachman's Vinyl Tap Stories, the great Randy Bachman. Shaking all over. In a moment, a woman in her 60s decides to fulfill a dream by becoming a competitive weightlifter. That's next on Growing Bolder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by the UCF College of Medicine, where physicians, scientists, and teachers are discovering innovative solutions for today's medical challenges and bringing them to you. Learn more about the college's physician practice at ucfhealth.com. Subscribe to Growing Boulder magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingbolder.com slash subscribe. Hey, this is Growing Boulder, along with Mark Middleton. I'm Bill Schaefer, and our next guest has a great story to tell us, because even as a young girl, she felt like she really didn't fit in. Her idea of fun, a little bit different than most, because she loved to compete, to run, to climb, to tackle. But she grew up in the 50s when, you know, girls didn't do those things. They couldn't do much in high school and even less in college. You know, Bill, we say it's never too late. And after 62 years of waiting, she is finally going to get the chance to fulfill her dream to compete for the first time ever in an athletic competition. That, of course, is interesting enough. But what really puts her story over the top is that the sport of choice for her is powerlifting. Let's find out more as we say hello to Louise Miller. Hey, Louise, how are you? 
I am fine. Thanks for having me. Matt, we're thrilled to have you and anxious to hear more about your story. Uh, did, did Bill get it right? Were you kind of a tomboy growing up, or were you just a girl who liked to push herself? No, I was a tomboy. I was a baseball player, and I would much rather play with the boys than play with the girls. Now I'm playing with the girls. And how hard powerlifting? How hard was that socially? We've had Dot Richardson on this program, who was an Olympic softball player, and she said when she was a girl, they actually told her to put a hat over her hair and pretend she was a boy so she could play. Oh no, no, no! I I batted cleanup. I was <laughs> part of the team. That was not a problem. It helped that my brother was the steady pitcher, but. Um, I was, uh, I got to be on the team just like the boys. So did you go through that phase where you were just totally demoralized, you know, seeing that ceiling in front of you? And, you know, I guess as you would get older and older, you would, your opportunities were less and less. Well, that's true for girls in, in public school, probably private school at the time. We had PE, fifth grade, I was the fastest girl in the fifth grade, and then it dropped off because those um, opportunities weren't there. The only thing we could kind of do was maybe be a cheerleader, which isn't exactly um, aerobic exercise, or maybe we could be on the drum flag corps. But uh, other than PE, which was required and, in fact, should still be required, um, those were our opportunities. So obviously, Louise, this spark continued to burn. Uh uh, but, but what really activated it? What at the age of 62 made you decide that you were actually going to train to be a power lifter? Well, I had some health issues like many of us in our group. We, have, we had 14 to start with, and now we're up to 14 plus 11. Uh, and um, I had my physician say to me, you need to get busy and do weight-bearing exercise in order to manage osteopenia, which is a uh, precursor to osteoporosis. So I started running, and I had the um, benefit of knowing people who were qualified, uh, certified personal trainer, exercise physiologists to guide me through this. So the idea of weightlifting actually came about as I was doing this um, uh, running and to uh, actually stress my bones a little bit more by by adding weight and uh, squatting with it, lifting it. And um, then my partner, my good partner and, and great buddy, uh, went to a powerlifting com- uh, competition and saw what happened. And um, I said to Linda, my friend, I said, you know what? You can do that. You can go lift the same amount of weight as this little tiny girl um, who was also lifting. Linda a small person and, and a powerful person. So the two of us started doing this uh, more seriously, and we got the rest of our group involved. And so we have a whole range of people, most of them over 60. And what we... Our, our top concern is being healthy and taking care of our um, health issues, whether it be back pain, whether it be osteoporosis, whether it be um, uh, too much weight, uh, cardiovascular disease. All of this can be uh, our, our benefits of doing um, not only powerlifting, but aerobic training. So socially, this opened your world up, right? You started... Oh, we are best friends. We are all best friends. And there is... We are the support crew, support group par excellence. And um, it's it's all about making our own progress, of achieving our own goals. And some of us are... Uh, better at it and and can dedicate more time. Um, Others of us are more casual about it, but we're all committed to um, making ourselves uh, more healthy. And and the competition aspect gives us an incentive. And, Louise, your family members and your friends, when they hear your power lifting, they go say, what? That's, you got that right. Oh, boy, you do. Right. They can't believe this. So 
It's been great, and it's been it's we have our own club, our Oh Wow Club, Older Women on Weights, and we meet regularly. The value of having a partner is critical because that partner keeps you coming in and keeps you doing it and keeps you motivated and excuses you when you um, don't do well. So you're not looking, you're not bulking up and, you know, looking like a, a, a bodybuilder. You're still, you know, you're still family. You're just getting healthy, in shape, and getting that rock-hard body. Well, I don't know about rock-hard, but I will tell you my arms are not so flabby. They're not flabby. Most of us don't have flabby arms. And we have pretty good-looking legs after doing squats <laughs> and deadlifts for old women. Hey, uh, we got 20 seconds. Give okay. us, uh, other than a, a set of 10 uh, deadlifts, give us a quick takeaway. What can other people listening learn from what you've done? Get out there and do it. Find time to do it, whatever fits your schedule. Find a trainer that is qualified, ha- is certified, and there's certifying agents, um, organizations. Find someone who has a degree in exercise phys and has personal experience with Olympic style or powerlifting. Well, I got to tell you, that was definitely an uplifting experience talking with a 60 something year old power lifter who's turned her life around. Yeah. By getting right. by getting involved in something and you know improving her physical condition, having a social experience like she never had before, and folks, no matter what your passion or your interest is, you can turn it around. You can live a, a full and vibrant life, and you can start growing bolder. Thanks to Louise Miller for the shot of inspiration. Well, that was yet another fascinating show, Bill, if I say so myself. How can you go wrong when what you offer is hope and inspiration? And, of course, proof that it's possible to overcome all sorts of obstacles and to live a life that's full of adventure, excitement, and reward. That, folks, is our mission here on Growing Boulder. Every guest you hear brings along a takeaway that we can all learn from. And as bold as we all hope to be, most of us just need a little reassurance that things really are possible. And, you know, next week and every Every week, you're going to hear from more celebrities, more experts, more people out there who have great stories to tell. You can check out Growing Boulder TV, now airing in over 90% of the country. Find out where at GrowingBoulderTV.com. Check out Growing Boulder magazine, and you'll realize, isn't it time you started Growing Boulder? Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting, all rights reserved. This program was recorded live at the studios of WMFE Orlando. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Jackie Carlin, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producer is Katie Widrick. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Remember, when it comes to growing bolder, it's not about age. It's about attitude. Stay.